The Word says we're called to make disciples. We're growing in the Word of God. Jesus Christ was sent to be our Saviour. This is the Bromley Town Church Podcast. We pray God speaks to you through this message, blessing you as you live out God's Word. Stream or download other sermon podcasts via the Bromley Town Church website or by using the SoundCloud app. Head over to BromleyTownChurch.com. The power of the cross is what we started looking at last week. And we want to understand in this series what the power of the cross is, what has happened on the cross, and how that actually affects our lives. In the introduction that I gave last week, I mentioned that the power of the cross is this. It is the place where sin is completely and utterly dealt with. That truly is the power of the cross. Now, I know that we can think of all sorts of things that happened on the cross, Jesus, and we're putting it all together. But succinctly, the power of the cross is this. That is the place where sin is dealt with. And that is the power of it. But for us to understand some of that power, to see how great it is, then we need to look at what sin is like and some of the characteristics of sin. Because when we see what sin is like and knowing that the cross has overcome sin, then we can understand the greatness of that power. And so today, we're going to look at this wonderful subject of sin and evil. So I'm sorry if you, it's your first time back and you think, oh, I've come to hear about sin and evil. But hopefully as we go through this, there will be encouragement in it for you. Firstly, some definitions. Sin, sin is defined as this, transgression of the divine law, transgression of God's law. Now to transgress means you have stepped over. So if you imagine and you can see the blue lines The blue lines obviously mark out the distances of the chairs, so they're socially distanced and all that. But to transgress is you're supposed to keep one side of the line. Say, I've got to keep this side of the blue line. If I transgress, it means that I've gone over that line. And so when God says, look, I want you to do this or I don't want you to do that, and you cross over the line into doing something you shouldn't, that's transgression and that is what sin is. And evil, evil is the word that is given to the moral corruption that is amongst us. The things that we do, the wickedness that we find in the world. That is what evil is. It is immoral. It is wrong. It is nasty and it is bad. There's other words we could use. Now, as Christians, we're probably more used to the word sin because we hear it in church and we should hear it in church because we need to understand it. And we know that sin is a breaking of God's law. But even if you don't like that word sin, you know, some people will say, like, well, I'm not a sinner. You might have a conversation with somebody at work and you're using this word sin. Well, I'm not a sinner. I'm, I'm basically a good person. You've probably had some of those conversations or experienced that in life. But you see, whether you admit to sin or whether you understand sin, everybody understands what evil is. Let me give you an illustration. If you were to go up to somebody and say, do you believe in good? They're going to say, uh, yeah, I believe in good. I like good. I want more good. I like good things when they happen to me. So there's an understanding of what good is. But equally so, if you were to say to people, do you understand evil? They would also say, yes, I understand evil. I don't like it. There's lots of evil in the world. Evil things have happened to me. Things have come against me. I don't like evil. I don't want evil. You see, people understand good and evil, despite the fact whether they go to church or not. It is a universally understood situation. Listen to this. 
If we say that there is too much evil in the world, we are assuming there is good. When we assume there is good, we also assume there is a moral law that we use to differentiate between good and evil. You understand this? In other words, there has to be a line that we would put in front of us to work out whether something is good or evil. And if we are to differentiate between good and evil, and if we assume a moral law, then we are setting in place a moral law giver. One of the hallmarks of God upon everyone's life, not just people in the church, upon everyone's life is this. We have a sense of what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. We have a conscience that flags up warnings to us, and when we start to walk in ways that are wrong, even though we may dismiss the fact, we have to accept that there is a moral lawgiver, somebody who has given us that understanding within ourselves. Now, we're going to look today at the start of sin. If we're talking about sin, where did sin start start from? And of course, we find this as soon as we enter into the beginning of the Bible in the book of beginnings, which is called Genesis. And that's where we find the start of sin. There we see that sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, the first created human beings, when they rebelled against God's command. And the first sin takes place in a garden called the Garden of Eden. God had said to Adam, and this was his command that he gave to him, Genesis 2 verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And that was the information, that was the command that God said, eat of any tree, but not that one. So that's the understanding that they had. Now Eve, Adam's wife, was tempted by the serpent that had appeared to her. Genesis 3 verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? And Eve responded to that by saying, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. And Genesis 3 verse 4, the serpent comes back with his reply to her and says this, You will will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. It seemed to Eve when she heard this, wow, this is something I haven't had. Has God been holding out on me? Has he been restricting something from my life? Is there something that actually I can walk in that I haven't been able to receive before? And there's almost this sense in which, hang on, that which seemed to be poisonous, that which seemed to be, no, I can't go near it, suddenly becomes the opposite. That tree's attractive. God's been holding out on me. I'm going to take that tree. Genesis 3 verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it, ate it, she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. That moment, 
was the moment of sin entering the world. That moment was that moment when they crossed over the line of what God said they shouldn't do. There was a clear transgression, there was sin, and that is when sin entered the world. Now, having opened the doorway to sin, now the whole of mankind is under its influence. And Paul writes about this in Romans, uh, in the book of Romans. Romans 5 verse 12. When Adam sinned, he wrote, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. And that's the situation that's come to us, to mankind. Because of that first sin, the doorway to sin was opened, the way for sin to enter the world was unleashed, and now the whole power of evil has come into the world like a tide. It's interesting because the verses I've been quoting to you about uh, Adam and Eve and eating that fruit, that's just Genesis 3. It's only in the very next chapter where we find the sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and we find that Cain, one of those sons, rises up and murders his brother. That's merely the next chapter. We've gone from no sin, the introduction of sin, and now there's murder. And in actual fact, if we were to read just a few chapters more, Genesis 6, we're reading this. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. The extent of human wickedness on the earth. And he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. This is just the beginning of the Bible. We've seen that as soon as that doorway to sin was open, there's a tide of evil that comes flooding in. There's murder, and then there's the imaginations of men's hearts are wicked. Sin is a power. Evil is a force, and it seeks to grip our hearts. And we seem to end up doing things that we didn't really want to do. I don't want to lie. I don't want to cheat. I don't want to deceive people. I don't want to be arrogant or prideful and selfish. And yet the very things that I don't want to do, I still find myself falling into the trap of doing those things. There is power in sin. That is why God had said to Cain, before he had murdered his brother, God spoke to him and he said, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin, this power, is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You can sense that hand coming out to grab hold of. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Sin has a power and it affects our lives. It affects our nature and it directs us to do things that we don't want to have. We have got to learn to master that. That's the start of sin, the breaking of God's law. And that's when things started to go wrong. Now that's the start of sin. But now I want to look at just four things that are, if you like, the characteristics of sin. When we sin, what happens in our lives? How does it affect our lives? And so there's four things that we're going to look at. Point one is this, sin separates. Sin separates. The problem with sin, and as we sin, is it brings a separation between the creation 
and its creator. It brings a separation between mankind and their God. It separates. There's a barrier that comes. Before sin, there was perfect fellowship, perfect unity. Great, you know, Adam and Eve would meet together with God. They would fellowship with him in the garden. He would instruct them and encourage them and teach them. And and they'd have a great time together. There was no difficulty. There was no embarrassment. There was no shame. There was no division. But when sin came, the first thing that happens is that God says you need to get out of the garden. They're actually sent away as it were, from the presence of God. Because they had shown that disdain for his command, there was a barrier that came in their relationship. Have you ever experienced that in a relationship yourself? It's interesting. If we look at relationships and how relationships can go wrong, sometimes it gives us an indication of what I'm talking about. There was another pastor in the town some years back now, and we were doing something at the church or theater, a group of churches we're doing something at the Churchill Theatre. I saw this guy up the high street and I said to him, oh, great, listen, we're doing this at the Churchill Theatre. Get your people to come. Encourage your people to come along. Oh, I don't know whether I can do that. And then he went on to a whole lot of difficulties that I knew that they'd had in their church. And, and he was just saying like, you don't understand what it's like. And I said to him, Look, I do understand. We've been through difficulties in our time. I've certainly experienced difficulties in my life as a pastor through relationships, people in church, all that sort of stuff. Listen, still encourage your people to come along. But the very fact that I had said that I understood when in truth I hadn't fully understood what he was going through. That's true. But I said, oh, I do understand. There was a separate, there was something that broke in our relationship. It was difficult. In fact, I became aware of the fact, that's it, this guy and I were separated in relationship. And that went on for some time. I'm glad to say he went on for some time, but there came a time when I was able to meet up with him and I just said to him, look, I'm very sorry I didn't understand where you were coming from. And I have to say that conversation completely repaired everything. So there's a good end to the story. But the point I want to bring in the story is this. At that moment when I had, there was a disagreement in our understanding. At that point, it's like there was just a wall that came up. That's it. Now, unless you're going to deal with the wall... There's no ability to have relationship. Sure, you can say hi. Oh, yeah, okay. You can have sort of very surface conversations. But all the time, you know, there's the barrier. And that's got to be dealt with. Listen, this is what sin is like. It doesn't mean to say that you couldn't pray. Doesn't mean to say that God is not there. Doesn't mean to say that God can't even see you or know what's going on. It's just that there is a barrier. Sin separates, and unless the barrier is dealt with, there becomes a separation between you which is not dealt with and needs to be sorted out. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2, it says this, Listen, the the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear too deaf to hear you call. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. Sin causes a barrier. Oh, but I've only done one small sin. I'm not really a sinner. I'm a good person, as some people might say. But listen, it's not about the fact that you haven't robbed a bank or that you haven't driven over an old lady while she was crossing the road or something like that. It's not the greatness of our sins. It is the fact that we have sinned at all that's the problem. 
James 2 verse 10 says this, For the person who keeps all of the laws, except one, is as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder somebody but you do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. Sin separates. Sin separates. Sin enslaves. Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, the language that's being used there, obviously, is that of a slave and his master. And the object is that the slave obeys his master because he belongs to his master. The master owns him. Therefore, when the master gives a command, the slave needs to carry out the command or he will face real problems if he doesn't do so. You know, we see of these people coming over on the channel, migrants coming over to this country, migrants moving around to many countries around the world. Often, migrants can be forced into slavery because the people who've helped them get illegally into another country, they know they've got no passport. They know they've got their through the right channels, and so therefore they have a hold over them. And often we find that migrants are moved into a country and then they're forced into some sort of labor, or cheap labor particularly, where they're getting a couple of pounds an hour for their work because they're under a master who has got a reason to have a hold over them. When we are in sin, there is an enslavement that comes upon our lives. We are under its power and we start serving its desire. The slave obeys his master because he belongs to him. Sin separates, sin enslaves, and thirdly, sin hardens. When we keep walking in a sin, then our hearts get hardened towards it. Our ability to recognize that it's sin becomes less and less. I expect If you're like me, who's basically got soft hands, if you start doing any manual work, you quickly get a blister or something on your hand, especially if you're holding a a tool or something that's vibrating or rubbing, and you quickly get a blister. And the object of the blister is, it's to tell your body, hey, you're not usually doing this. It's, It's a warning sign to you say, hey, come on, take care, because you shouldn't be doing this. You need protection. You shouldn't be just handling these drills or whatever. You need to think about what you're doing. So you get a blister... But if you ignore that, eventually what happens is the blister bursts or whatever, and eventually you get hard skin. So in fact, you get hardened skin. Now, if you come to a builder who's doing it all the time, you find they've got quite hard skin on their hands because their hands have become accustomed to the fact they've got to build a barrier to protect them. When we sin, it's like we put this layer of a callus on our hearts that starts to help us. We don't really recognize it anymore because we built up this resistance to us. Our hearts get hardened. I recently watched a program on TV called The Armstrong Lie. And I don't know whether many of you are cyclists, but know of the name Lance Armstrong. I expect many of you will do, because he was a very famous cyclist. He actually won the Tour de France seven times in a row. So this wasn't just fame. This is like, this guy is immense. 
And as he was going through it and winning year after year, there became a lot of criticism over him. Surely this guy is taking performance-enhancing drugs to have achieved this against people who are basically the same level of fitness in his field around him. Especially, the thing about Lance Armstrong was he had survived cancer And so as a cancer survivor, there was this extra edge to him that he had gone on to this mighty feat of accomplishing all of his sporting endeavors. And so time went on. And of course, he was, went through the anti-doping things, had blood tests, a urine test, all that sort of stuff you have to have all the time as a sportsman. But he always was never caught. There was never issue. So he was always very vehement in saying, anybody who said, hey, are you doping? What do you mean do you think I'm doping? I'm not doping. There's no evidence. Look at everything. And he was so vehement that if you like, everybody began to believe him. And it wasn't until a number of years later that actually some of his teammates who'd been in the same cycle team as him, they actually started to confess, hey, we have taken performance-enhancing drugs. And they were part of the regime in which Lance Armstrong was, if you like, the guy at the top And they had taken it. And yes, we've seen Lance Armstrong taking drugs. And so the rumors now are gathering and gathering and gathering. And eventually the American Anti-Doping Agency did a massive investigation. And they came out and they just said, you've taken performance-enhancing drugs. And they stripped Lance Armstrong of all of his titles. But it's only after that happened that Lance Armstrong actually went on the Oprah Winfrey show one day And she asked him some direct questions. Have you ever taken performance-enhancing drugs? And bearing in mind, he'd always vehemently denied it. He just says, yes, I have. And on that program, he made a public confession of the fact that actually all of that time, all of that time he had been lying and deceiving. But you know what? Because he'd walked in those lies, there was something that had hardened his heart. And actually, he even now has said, well, I didn't really do anything wrong. But you did. You cheated the system. Sin hardens the heart to the extent that we start to support the fact, it's not me, I've not done that, and we start to live in the lie that we have actually created. Sin hardens the heart. Hebrews 3, verse 12 to 13 says this, and and the writer there is writing to Christians. He says, see to it, brothers and sisters. So it's like us addressing ourselves here. See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin separates, sin enslaves, sin hardens, and finally sin deceives. To deceive means you are misled by a false appearance. You have become deluded by something. The very essence of sin is that it deceives you. It promises much, it delivers little. It promises, this is what I'm going to give to you. Look, if only the grass is so much greener, come on over here. Leave that relationship behind. Look, this person's going to be so much better for you. Come over here, do this. And yet you find when you get there, hey, this is not delivering what I was promised. In fact, this is capturing me in things that I didn't expect and is making life worse for me. Sin deceives us. We end up getting what we don't expect, or rather we don't fully get what was promised. 
And it's like a drug for us. That's the thing with sin. It, it's sort of like, have a bit of this. And you go there and you think, well, that didn't quite give me what I wanted. So it almost comes the cry again. Well, no, no, you perhaps you need to have a little bit more. And so you go back. And like a drug and a drug addict keeps going back for more because they want to try to find the high that they were looking for. So sin takes us into a place of greater and greater deception. Just like it deceived Lance Armstrong and he was used to deceive others. Sin has that effect upon us. It deceives. Instead of getting what we want, we can end up literally with, mu- with nothing. Ravi Zacharias was preaching to a group, or well, a whole team of American uh, baseball uh, players. He'd been asked to go and give a, a talk to them. And he said he didn't know why, what to do because here's these guys that are all muscly. They all know, seem to know everything about the sport and everything. So he just decides to talk to them about something completely different. He talks about, hey, let's talk about life away from home. Because he knew these guys have to tour around the States, playing in different areas. So he says, let's talk about what it's like about life away from home. Because I travel a lot, says Ravi Zacharias, and so therefore I can talk to you on a level playing field. And he talked to them about the pressure of when you're away from home, sometimes when you're away from your uh, environment of accountability, lots of different things can happen. And he spoke to them about that. Afterwards, people came up to thank him. But one of these American baseball players came up and cried on his shoulder. And he said this to Ravi. He says, I have all the money I need, but I have lost everything of value that I ever possessed. He was talking of the story about how, yes, he had been deceived. He had fallen into sin. And the net result of that is where he thought it had promised him so much and it was going to be fine. He's now found, look, I've got all the money I wanted. I've still got that. But everything of every value, I've lost. And that is a story for us. Sin deceives. It tells us what we can do, what we want, and yet we can end up with losing everything we had. The essential character of sin is that it separates, it enslaves, it hardens, it deceives. But lastly, I just want to mention one last thing. God hates sin. God hates sin. And he has announced a payment for everyone who sins. That wage, if you like, that payment for that result is this. It is eternal death. The wages of sin is death. That is what has been pronounced by God who is a holy God. Isaiah 13 verse 11 says this, Of God, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their sins. So sin not only separates, enslaves, hardens, and deceives, it is also going to be punished with eternal death. That's bad news. But for the power of the cross. The power of the cross is it is a place where sin is dealt with once and for all time completely. John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And Acts 4, verse 12 Salvation is found in no one else, 
For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved, save that name of Jesus Christ. The power of the cross is that it deals with sin. But the results of sin is that it enslaves, hardens, separates and deceives and is to be punished with eternal death. Next week, we're going to be looking at the work of the cross. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bromley Town Church. You are always welcome to visit us on a Sunday morning or join us again for more messages here online. You can also stay connected with us at www.bromleytownchurch.com.